first married, Hazel and I went to a church, belonged to a church, where there was an old gentleman there who was an ex-missionary, and he always used to pray out loud, Amen and Amen. And uh, he was um, a well-known character and a lovely Christian. It's good. Now we are turning to Philippians, to the book of Philippians in the New Testament for our time together of meditation in God's Word. This is the start of a new series which is going to last four weeks and therefore it will be an overview of Philippians really, taking one chapter each week in four weeks. And of course with any of the New Testament letters um, you could take one one week in every verse. But we're not doing that, we're just taking one week in each chapter. And uh, I'm not going to deal with the technical side of the, the book You can read that up if you're particularly interested in it. But we accept that this is God's word to us, and we'll take it from there. It's from the Apostle Paul, it says at the beginning. And, of course, Timothy joined him. I'm sure it was from Paul, really. But Timothy was with him and added his amen and amen to it. Um, And so he, Paul puts Timothy in uh, as well. And it's to all the saints at Philippi. And the word saints there simply means all believers, all Christians, at Philippi. Saints are not special people who have to be um, made into saints by any pope or any special person, but they are all believers, and we are saints, therefore you're saints if you're a Christian at all. So it's to all the Christians, all the saints at Philippi, every believer. And also he mentions the overseers and the deacons. The overseers are those who have the responsibility of leading God's church, The word overseer here is the word episkopos, from which we get the word episcopalian, from episcopalian churches. But uh, it means one who recognizes and diligently oversees a work. Somebody who recognizes the need and oversees it, makes sure it happens. So they're called here, in our translation, overseers. And deacons, the word simply means servants. Those who originally did the work of the king, serve the king, but it now means any servant. And the whole of this chapter that we're looking at today is a chapter about God's word, the gospel as he calls it, again and again through this chapter, and the impact of the gospel and our relationship with the gospel, and uh, what we need to learn from it. Now, there is a sense in which, of course, a half-truth can be more dangerous than no truth at all. Because it can lead you astray thinking that you've got the truth, when in fact you haven't got the complete truth, the whole truth at all. And there's a lot of error around today, not because somebody doesn't know the gospel or doesn't know the truth, but because the half-truths can lead to a fantasy world if we're not careful. You know, like Lewis Carroll, where they were required to believe six impossible things every day before breakfast. Now, that sort of thing can happen even in Christian teaching. So what we need to look for is the whole truth, the whole truth of God's word and the gospel. In our vision statements that we've been thinking about over the last um, few weeks, we've talked, for example, about it's only together with all the saints that we shall comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of God. And so, though you don't have all the truth, and I don't have all the truth, we have our part of the truth, and we understand some things, and you understand some things, it's as we come together that the picture of the truth 
becomes clearer because we learn what God has revealed to different people at different times. I mean, a little baby. When a baby is born, if it's a healthy baby, that baby is whole and complete, but not yet fully mature. And what we want is the wholeness of truth, even though we're not yet mature, even though we're not yet um, fully the people that God wants us to be. We want to strive for that wholeness of truth. And when we have that truth, the important thing is, what do we do with it? It's all very well to know this book. I mean, you could spend all day just studying this book. Uh, I did a lot of work in prison years ago. I was one of the chaplains in prison. And there was a a man in in the, um, the prison there who was on his, I think it was his 74th Bible study correspondence course. And he'd passed every one of them with flying colors. But he wasn't a Christian. He didn't really know what it was about, but he just studied it. There's a a possibility in which you can learn this, but it means nothing. We need to say, well, what do we do with this truth then? What do we do when we get it? And that's some of the things we should be thinking about. We need to expound it. That is, we need to share it with each other. We need to expound it. We need to expose ourselves to it. That means we need to listen to it carefully. And we need to experience it so that it becomes worked out in our lives. Now, in this chapter, there are four things that we're going to look at in Philippians, in this particular chapter. And they're all to do with the gospel. The first one, partnership in the gospel. Second one, the advance of the gospel. Thirdly, the defense of the gospel. And fourthly, a life worthy of the gospel. So let's just briefly look at those four things. First of all, Paul talks in verse 5 of partnership in the gospel. This is how he puts it. I'm thankful, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Nobody's alone in Christian Christian things. Whether they're in Christian ministry full-time or whether they have other jobs that they do and so on, we're all involved together and nobody is alone in it. We're called to work with our particular gifts different ways at different times, but work in fellowship with each other. In fact, some translations of the Bible have fellowship of the gospel rather than partnership, but we've got partnership here. Uh, you know, I'm always alarmed when people come to me and, said, and say, um, I say I'm alarmed, that's a bit too strong to put it, but always uh, I, I begin to listen carefully when people say, um, God has told me to do dot, dot, dot. Now, that may really be true. But, you know, sometimes there's a subtext when people say that. What the subtext is, and I'm not going to listen to anybody else because I think God's told me. Now, that's not the picture of the New Testament. The picture is that in Christian things there is a partnership. There's in the local church, there's a, a partnership. Now, there's three aspects of partnership mentioned here. First of all, Paul talks about partnership in prayer. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you, In all my prayers, I always pray for you with joy. And I'm thankful for the partnership. So there's partnership in prayer. We've already reminded ourselves that he's addressing all the saints, every believer that is. But now he's talking about this partnership is in prayer. And you're involved in that, and I'm involved in that. Sometimes we feel left out, and it's sad when we do. 
like school, you know, when you're in primary school and let's, they say, let's play a game of football and two captains are chosen and this one chooses one and then that one chooses one and that one ch- And the poor fellow is left at the end. There he is and he feels a bit feeble because he's the last one. Nobody really wants him on their team, but they have to have him and so on. But that should not happen in the church. We are partners together in this and partners particularly in prayer. And the emphasis here is upon prayer. Verse 3, it says, Paul prays, I in all my prayers for all of you, he says in verse 3. And then look further down in verse 19. He says, I know that through your prayers things will happen. So there's Paul's prayer for them and their prayer for Paul and what was going on there. And of course, Paul at this time was in prison. He was in direct dependence upon God to deliver him. He couldn't get out of prison himself. He was in a Roman prison. He was there because of his faith, because of his preaching of the gospel. And so he was very dependent upon them, praying for him as he prayed for them. But just look again at verse 19. He says this, I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that if I'd written that, I might have written it the other way round. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, with the help of your prayers, things might turn out for my deliverance. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says it's through your prayers, helped by the Spirit, that it'll turn out for my deliverance. Now, what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that the real work that we do is prayer. It's not a subtext, you know, something that God is doing in the world and and then we come along and just add our prayer hoping it's like a bit of fertilizer given to a plant to make it grow a little bit better. It's not that at all. The real work is prayer. That's why we should not miss out in times of prayer, whether they're times of prayer in the church or whether they're our own personal times of prayer because that's where the work is done. You don't... Or you shouldn't look upon your prayer as praying for God's work, but praying is God's work. You don't look upon your prayer as praying for the ministry, the preachers who come on Sunday, but your praying is God's work. It is part of the ministry because there's this partnership. You may not be the person who actually goes to a foreign country to preach the gospel, but as you pray... You are as important as the person who's gone overseas and preaches the gospel. There's a partnership, and both are involved in the work. Next week, we're hoping that Corinna and Beek will be here. You know, Corinna, some of you will remember from a few years back, she was in the fellowship here and while she was studying, and then she went to Moldova and has been working in Moldova, And um, we're looking forward, she's coming back and to make a visit, and we're looking forward to her being here next Sunday. I say we're looking forward to it because it's been very difficult to communicate with her, and we haven't had the final confirmation, although she knows all about it. So we just hope that that nothing has gone wrong. But anyway, that's next week. Now, she's gone, she went to Moldova. None of us will probably go to Moldova. It's unlikely, you might do. But her work there and us praying for our partnership. And that's the Lord's work as much what we do as what she does. Now that's what Paul prays about partnership in prayer. Then there's partnership in personal involvement. Um, Paul had come 
had lost contact with Philippi. There'd been a gap since the time he went and planted the church, and later on, and now he writes to them. And he'd heard again about the church from a fellow called Epaphroditus. He's mentioned in the last chapter of the book, or chapter 3, rather, and we'll come to that a little bit later. No, it isn't. It's the end of chapter 2. But anyway, it's in, he's mentioned in there. Epaphroditus. He'd heard about it again. But it's because there was such a sense of personal involvement, though there was a big gap, and he'd been separ- Paul had been separated from the Philippians for such a time, he could still speak about, verse 5, about having partnered with them, partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now. Yeah, there'd been a long gap, but this work had been going on. This involvement together, and he expressed that. Now, how was that possible? Well, verse 7 tells you how it's possible. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. His involvement with the church there, though he hadn't visited for some long while, was because he held them in his heart. And actually that's the key to praying, isn't it? It's not just having a list of things that we tick off as we pray. It's that we hold other people in our hearts, and so on. And it's not just generalized prayer, It's not sort of, God, please bless the missionaries. You know, whatever that means. But he he knew about them and what they were doing and he'd heard about them. He held them in his heart so that he could pray for them. Uh, um, And I think that's very important for us to remind ourselves about. And in verses 9 to 11, we won't look at them in detail, but verses 9 to 11, he says, tells them how he prayed. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now that's much more than a just God bless the missionaries type prayer. He obviously knows them. He obviously knows what they need and what should, what should happen, that their love may abound more and more. Tell me, how do you pray for each other in the fellowship? What do you pray for? Well, here's a little pattern. You could even use these verses and enlarge on them in your prayers if you wanted to. But it's thinking about the needs of the person and what will be helpful to the person and praying for those particular needs. And there's this involvement with them. So the first thing is involvement in partnership in prayer, partnership in personal involvement, then thirdly, partnership in giving and receiving. Now that actually doesn't come out in chapter 1, but it does come out in chapter 4, which says this. In verse uh, 15, Paul says this. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for such a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. So here they were, there was this partnership, this fellowship, that included giving and receiving. They gave on this in the past, Paul says, and he received. And now he's writing to them and they are receiving from what he writes to them. It's that involvement in giving and receiving. Practical support. They sent money, no doubt. And you can read sometime in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 
about the attitude of their giving to these particular people and how the Philippians, uh, or rather how the Philippians gave and the attitude that they had. So that's the first thing, partnership in the gospel. Second thing is the advance of the gospel. And this is here in verse 12. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. The word advance there is a little Greek word. It's prokope. And it really means striking the tents. You know, when an army was on march, uh, uh, en route in those days, they would set up camp for the night, would put their tents up, and when they were ready to advance, they struck tents as they strike the camp, as it were, and set off. And that's the word that's used here. So that they could make progress. It's packing up things that are not helpful and necessary, things that would hold you back, so that you can make an advance. And what he's talking about here is that there's been this advance of the gospel. Now often when we think of gospel ministry, this is the only thing we think of. But it is an important part of the, uh, uh, the gospel going out. But you see, the problem was with Paul was that he was in prison. He'd been put in there for his faith in the Lord Jesus and preaching the gospel. And the church was very concerned that now all this preaching from Paul that he'd been able to do in all sorts of places and so on, that's all going to come to an end because he's in prison. And he had to write to them and say, no, 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 you've got it wrong. What has happened to me has been the advance of the gospel. Rather than hindering and resisting it, uh, restraining the gospel, it's, it's actually served to advance the gospel. The church, no doubt, had heard about Paul's imprisonment through Epaphroditus, and they were sort of worried about it. But here he is in prison. And we're told that he's in prison as a prisoner of Caesar's personal bodyguard. Personal household guard. They were the crack regiment, the crack troops in Caesar's army. They were the only regiment to receive a pension because they were his personal bodyguard. And they were the people guarding Paul. And they were linked to the prisoner day and night with a chain. It was a short chain by the ankle and a short chain by the wrist. And there would be a guard standing there beside him 24 hours a day. And you must think to yourself, isn't that terrible for Paul? What a, what a constraint that is. Paul didn't think that, though. Paul said, he can't get away. He can't, he can't move. He's my prisoner. I'm not his prisoner. And so he was able to share the gospel with them till the Praetorian Guard had become Christians. And because that per- person had been chained to him, when his, um, his time came to an end, he, he handed on to somebody else. He went back and started talking to the others. And before very long, well, we're told, the whole Praetorian Guard heard the good news of the gospel. Caesar's household. See, it wasn't a constraint at all. It was an advance of the gospel that was taking place here. Tell me, do you feel constrained sometimes in doing Christian things and serving the Lord? Constrained by your, I don't know, personal circumstances, your lack of education, your lack of finance, your lack of friends and opportunity, your lack of X, Y, or Z. You couldn't be more constrained than being in prison, tied to a guard. But Paul was able to look upon it and say, no, this is an opportunity. Let me take the opportunity where I am. Maybe that your opportunity is just your family. There could be no greater privilege than sharing the gospel with your family. 
It may be that you just meet a few people each day. What a privilege. That's the advance of the gospel. It may be that you have great opportunities with thousands of people. Well, it's a great opportunity. So here he speaks of the advance of the gospel. Of course, um, the church often grows best when it's under pressure. When the missionaries pulled out of China, they were forced out of China, when communism took over, they thought there were about 50,000 Christians in China. Today, nobody knows, but a conservative estimate is 150 million Christians in China. There may be many, many more than that. And the constraints that we think often are not constraints at all. And we should seek to look upon our circumstances as not constraining us. So there's the advance of the gospel. Thirdly, Paul speaks about the defense of the gospel. Verse 16, talking about how people preach Christ out of rivalry and envy and others out of goodwill. He says, the latter do so in love, that is those who preach out of goodwill. And I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Others uh, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble while I'm here in change. But he says, I'm here for the defense of the gospel. Of course, for Paul, eventually, his defense of the gospel meant that he had to go to court. And he stood before Caesar, and he stood before the governor, Felix, and, uh, and so on, later on. As he did so, they asked him about his life and his ministry, and he took the opportunity to say, this is what the gospel is all about. And he preached the gospel. He was defending his position. Now, the word defense here is the word apologia. It's the word from which we get our word apology. <coughs> but it doesn't mean that Paul apologized for the gospel in the way we use the word. It means he was able to lay down clearly, in a logical way, what the gospel was about, why he was a Christian, and what the spread of the gospel was all about. It's a logical progression of thought. That's what it means. And he was put there to explain things. And Paul says, here, I, I, I'm here. I'm in no way constrained. I'm in no way held back. And in fact, I'm here to, to defend the gospel. And it's a great opportunity to defend the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about our conscience being involved and our mind being involved and our will being involved as we seek to defend the gospel and uh, make sure that the gospel it becomes clear to those who hear. So he's there for the defense of the gospel and from time to time we have people come to us and say, what's this all about? I've been hearing you being going to Abbey Church. You've been going to this church, you've been to that meeting, or you've done this as a, a Christian. What, what's it all about? Well, that's an opportunity for you to make a defense of the gospel. You may not be highly eloquent, you may not feel that you have all the knowledge, but what you do know, you can speak about. Like this man that Jesus once helped, healed his blindness, and they came to him and said, tell us what's been going on. He said, I don't know very much. All I know is that once I was blind, and now I see. And we can do the same at our level with the gospel itself, making our defense of the gospel. And as we study God's word week by week, it makes our defense of the gospel more effective. And then lastly, he speaks of a life worthy of the gospel. Verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
There is nothing like hypocrisy for destroying the work of God, for undermining the proclamation of the gospel. When our lives say one thing and our lips say something else. I um, heard a story the other day about a man who got up late and went to work and as he got up, he was in a bit of a rush. It was a very important appointment he had to go to and the alarm clock hadn't gone off so he leapt out of bed, jumped into his car and shot off down the road trying to catch up a bit of time. And up ahead he saw the traffic lights turning to red and he thought to himself, I can make it. So he put his foot down on the accelerator thinking he could jump across before they actually turned red. Unfortunately, the lady in front was a lady, put her foot on the brake and stopped at the traffic light. So he had to stop too. And he was fuming because of this. And he was banging the steering wheel and he was waving his arms and shouting at this woman from the previous of his car. And he kept on doing that until he heard a tap on the window. And he turned to see and it was a policeman standing there who'd seen his, his fit of mini road rage in the previous of his, privacy of his car. And the policeman said, would you mind getting out of your car, sir? He'd moved it to the side and he said, get out of the car. And then he said, um, Fred, can't let you drive like that. He said, I'm going to take you back to the station. Please get into the, my police car. Put him in the police car, take him off to the police station, fingerprinted him, photographed him, put him in a cell for a couple of hours to cool down. After a couple of hours, the policeman went to the man and said, excuse me, sir, he said, um, would you like to come back to the desk and collect your personal effects? I'm afraid there's been a terrible mistake. And he said, what was the terrible mistake? And as they went back and he said, well, when I pulled up behind you and saw you shouting and swearing and waving your arms about the woman in front, he said, I saw you there and then I noticed on the back of your car, on the window at the back, on the right-hand side, there was an invitation to the Alpha course. Then I looked on the other side and there was an invitation to spring harvest. In the middle there was a text that said, or a little verse, a little thing that said, I'm going to heaven, follow me. Uh, and then on the back of the car there was a fish on the back of the boot. And he said, I just assumed this car had been stolen. <laughs> you know, our lives are the biggest means of the spread of the gospel. And Paul calls upon them to live a life worthy of the gospel. Of course, we all let the Lord sit down sometimes. But uh, we shouldn't. Because there's nothing that hinders the spread of the gospel like a life of hypocrisy. And then finally, notice how he puts it here. The very end of the chapter. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Being granted to you to suffer for him. The word Paul uses is the word charismatic. It's the word granted. Charismatic, if we could put it like that. It's a charismatic gift. Suffering for the gospel. Ever thought of it like that? When it's hard, when it's difficult, when people don't seem to take any notice, ever thought... Well, what a wonderful gift God has given me. It's a gift of God's grace to be able to suffer like this for the gospel, for him. So it's a great privilege to not only hear the gospel, but to be partners in the gospel. To allow the gospel to have an involvement, to, to be, us to be involved with each other in the ministry of sharing the gospel.
whatever way that may be. As we are here for the defense of the gospel, explaining what we're doing and why we're doing and giving a logical explanation of what the Bible has to say and living a life worthy of the gospel. Now, next week, God willing, we shall look at chapter 2 where Paul goes on to speak about Jesus and his humility. Let's close our time together.